I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a talk given by Carl Abrahamson called We're on the Road to Somewhere. A version of this lecture was first presented at the Yule Higisi on December 11th, 2021. This is a chapter from Carl's upcoming book on inner traditions, due out in 2023. In the meantime, you can check out his book, A Culture, The Hidden Forces That Drive Culture Forward from Inner Traditions. Join us this Sunday, December 19th, at Morbid Anatomy Museum, live online via Zoom. Carl will be presenting Secrecy Exposed on the Necessity of Psychic Stigma and Dynamic Darkness in Occultism, alongside Mitch Horowitz, who will be presenting Up Up O Ye Gods, Hermeticism as a Path for Modern Seekers. This is part of our Psychoanalysis, Art, and the Occult series held at Morbid Anatomy Museum. We've been doing events once a month. The next event is on January 23rd, where we'll have Todd McGowan presenting on the films of Alfred Hitchcock and Mary Wilde presenting on the films of Roman Polanski. Visit our website, psychartcult.org for links and more information and register at Morbid Anatomy's website morbidanatomy.org slash events See you there Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23 C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Welcome to this talk called We're on the Road to Somewhere by me, Carl Abrahamson. I hope you will enjoy it. In the summer of 2009, I decided to go on a pilgrimage together with friends who temporarily lived in Vienna. We all wanted to enjoy a short vacation in the Tyrolean region, and our main object of pilgrimage was the home of German author Ernst Jünger. But to reach each goal, you first have to travel, and that is exactly what we did. From Vienna, we drove for a few hours westwards, sometimes hugging the scenic Donau. 
the cultivated slopes and landscapes were overflowing with vitality, beauty and produce, including peaches, a real treat in the Tyrolean heat. At St. Coloman, we trekked by foot up to the lake Seewaldsee, an almost unbelievably beautiful scenery with mountains, valleys, rolling hills, forest, meadows, grazing cows, complete with cowbells echoing in the distance, barking dogs, twittering birds, and waving people. And then the lake itself, a pastoral paradise pool. Swimming in that ice-cold water was refreshing, to say the least. Moving on at a leisurely pace, we traveled through Hallein, once the home of the founder of the German fraternity Ordo Templi Orientis, OTO, Karl Kellner. Then onwards towards Salzburg, a town overflowing with history. Specifically, we enthusiastically wanted to see proto-magician and alchemist Paracelsus Cemetery, St. Sebastian. Although he was so infused with God-fearing, or should that be church-fearing, language, no one can deny the radical intersectional power he wielded. Steady and strong at the crossroads of religion, the natural sciences, alchemy, magic and medicine, Paracelsus formulated a zeitgeist increasingly innovative and open-minded, and in defiance of blind religious authority. Always returning to nature itself and our personal interaction with nature as the fundament of any scientific understanding, Paracelsus was in so many ways a source for many centuries of German thought and art. Perhaps he is even still a vital and influential force for lingering esoteric romantics. Our next goal for that day was the village of Matrei Ambrenna and its castle, Schloss Auersberg. We arrived in the late afternoon, driving up serpentine dirt roads until we reached our destination. My friends knew the old princess still in residence, Wilhelmina Willi von Auersberg von Kaiserling, and she greeted us with generosity and hospitality. For me, this wasn't merely something royally exotic. Together with her husband, Arnold, Count von Kaiserling, Willi had brought Indian philosophy, yoga and shamanic awareness to Europe in the early 1960s and onwards. Also, Arnold's father was the prominent philosopher Hermann, Count von Kaiserling, whose travel stories and philosophical ruminations I greatly enjoyed in my youth. When the Bolsheviks stole the Kaiserling estate in Livonia, current Estonia, Hermann was forced to build a new life in Darmstadt, Germany, where he developed the Gesellschaft für Freie Philosophie, later on known as the School of Wisdom. After Hermann's death, this organization was kept up by Arnold and Willi, who infused it all with a strong dose of teachings from Gurdjieff, who was a friend of theirs. Willi was 88 years old at the time of our visit, and quite infirm. Frail, petite, with soft, finely wrinkled skin and clear blue eyes. She upheld not only appearances, but also genuinely a sense of friendliness and noblesse oblige. 
The castle, as such, was very much an extension of her, or vice versa. Although bombed by the Allies in frequent air raids during World War II, the remains of the castle were enough to evoke the grandeur of greater, even medieval, times. White-haired Wilhelmina likewise remained alive, defying setbacks and illness with her aristocratic aloofness. When she showed us around, our experience was literally connected to history in the best possible way. A journey that stretched from medieval times to present day, housed in a delicate human body, yet protected by stone, wood, aesthetics and attitude. The interior was adorned with a schematic poster displaying the School of Wisdom's spiritual system, African sculptures, family portraits, stones on the windowsills and dried pieces of wood. Looking out from on top of a majestic cupboard were striking photos of Arnold and Hermann. At dinner we talked about the place itself, about yoga, Sweden, gardening and what grew in the neighborhood and much more. In the evening I got to sleep in an office that housed Willy's desk. Before I fell asleep I sat at this desk writing in my diary, at the same time fantasizing or evoking Arnold sitting at the very same place, working away. And perhaps it had even at some point been used by Herman, too. Perhaps this explained my ensuing night filled to the brim with magical experiences in dreams. After breakfasting and talking some more with our delightful princess hostess, and visiting the village cemetery where her father, Karl Hieronymus von Ausberg, lies buried, we drove on toward the medieval town of Laufenburg. It's quite a unique crossroads kind of place, as the border between Switzerland and Germany runs right through the town in the form of the Rhine River. None other than Napoleon himself gave this order of arbitrary division, and it has simply stuck since then. Having arrived on the German side, we met up with the local troubadour Roland Kröll and his wonderful partner Claudia. Kröll is a specialist in preserving and performing medieval music on old instruments, and we were lucky, or prescient, to be able to attend one of his concerts. Like our recent visit to the old castle, in which life undeniably lingered on, listening to Krell's performance was a bizarre journey in time. When I closed my eyes and let the music take hold, I found myself in a completely timeless zone that could equally well have been 1309 as 2009. On the following day, we drove together with Roland and Claudia over Hohenfels, Tiefenstein and St. Blasien to the town of Ibach, where we parked the cars and headed straight into the Black Forest on foot. I now find it hard to describe the majestic beauty of the Schwarzwald, as I do with other overwhelming natural places too. It's a place of serene beauty and immense strength, lush and dense, yet with patches of open meadows overflowing with a delicate wealth of flowers. The forest engulfs you and won't let you go until you're thoroughly rejuvenated in inexplicable ways. After hiking for some hours, Roland and Claudia suggested we all remove our boots. 
The ground was grassy, mossy and delightfully soft. To put down our so-called civilized feet on moss-clothed soil was a genuinely sensual delight. Poor little feet that just keep on walking day after day. Here was truly some natural therapy for soul and soul alike. We then also put our happy feet in the cold water of a brook and just sat down like amazed children, splashing gently, moving our toes while feeling the feet grow number and number. When they eventually were back in their snug hiking boots, my feet walked on, happier than I've ever known them. Roland and Claudia encouraged us to look for fairies and other beings in the forest. But as we all know, we seldom see when we look too hard. However, later in the evening, as I was going through some photos of my friend bathing in a stream, I was very happy to notice that here was indeed something right in front of her that in my mind was nothing less than curious fairies. I have looked at this image many times since then, and any rationalization it being mosquitoes, it being mayflies or dragonflies, it being whatever, simply cannot compete with the joyful acceptance that it was a group of fairies excitedly checking my friend out. Exhausted but very happy, we said farewell to our precious guides and stayed at Titize overnight, before we set out towards the true goal of our journey, the Ernst Jünger House in Wilflingen. The residence of the German author today houses a museum dedicated to his life and work. It is literally a time and space capsule, which is overflowing with his vibrant mind and spirit. Stepping into that zone definitely affected me right away, as each genuine pilgrimage goal should. To be inside someone's former living and working quarters is in many ways an intrusion, but I felt I entered respectfully and in awe, almost. It immediately felt like a remarkable privilege to be there. An impressive totality is naturally made up of various parts, and this wonderful place has parts galore. First of all, Jünger's house is the home of someone who genuinely loved books, not only writing them but also reading them. Books are neatly, and sometimes not so neatly, shelved all over the house and reveal a curious mind, entranced since youth by the power of language and stories, by formulations in the service of myth. Then we have the reverence for nature itself. Jünger was a keen entomologist who also studied zoology early on. His meticulously ordered and displayed thousands of insects likewise reveal a mind obsessed with a wealth of small creatures, like words and sentences, all working to assemble a sense of meaning in the greater scheme of things. There is in Jünger's mind always a grey area between the natural sciences, myth and an intelligent form of religiosity, and they all contribute considerably to his own narrative strengths. Seeing all these bugs made me think of them all as very literally housing stories. The building itself is an 18th century forester's house on the grounds of the Stauffenberg Castle, 
the centre of the tiny village of Wilfringen. Filled with Biedermeier furniture, bookshelves, collections not only of insects but also of stones, crystals, shells, walking sticks, along with paraphernalia from his experiences as a soldier in both world wars, including photographs of fallen comrades, the house vibrates with a sense of awareness that history is very much a part of the present, perhaps the most important building block there is. But for it to become active and alive, one needs of course the insight into and awareness of what history actually is, a continual, continuing story. Revisions and restructurings are going on all the time, and no one is more susceptible to these kinds of post-mortem changes than artists in general, onto whom surviving successors, friends and enemies alike project their own emotions and views. But it struck me as interesting that in Jünger's house, a genuine sense of timelessness rules supreme. By securing the space and maintaining it as it was at the time of the author's death, this also affects our own sense of time while being in the space. Not only causally, as in being there at a specific time, but the intersection itself tells a story of what is actually possible for someone who knows what they're doing, taking refuge and creating a sacred space based not only on one's own time of life, but more importantly, one's own preferred time and its related aesthetics. Most people seem to enjoy being stuffed with immediate waste in the belief that it carries nutrition and culture. However, once the immediate evanescent experience is gone, nothing remains. Building your own world then becomes a resistance against the soulless acceptance of the contemporary mechanical times. If this world consists of more than merely accumulating material pieces that feel resonant with your soul or existential vision, and also houses, objects or other traces of your very own creativity, the chances are that you will find yourself in a very satisfying space-time continuum that will also have the power to affect others. It is a kind of three-dimensional magical manipulation of perception and apprehension that doesn't need to have been consciously constructed. It can equally well be formulated in very intuitive ways, such as creating art in various forms, including interior decorations. I found myself mesmerized by the end of a table in the living room. It was obviously a place where Jünger sat and wrote. An old chair at the end of the table, covered by a sheepskin. Orchids on the windowsill. On the table was a big notebook filled with his cursive writing, along with a fountain pen, ink, a Swiss army pocket knife, and a small glass with fresh flowers from the garden. This was the exact spot where the magic happened, where the nib met the paper texture, where the formulations materialized. 
I thought of the Kaiserling desk I had sat at a few days earlier, and about how material objects can indeed somehow talismanically, perhaps not transmit, but most certainly emit an energy or a spirit, better expressed in German as Geist, that affects those in the spatial proximity, in much the same way that great art continues to radiate and emit beauty and or messages hundreds of years later. If you walk around in Junger's house with knowledge of and respect for the man and his mind, you will naturally get more out of the visit than if you're merely an unwitting visitor. But the careful preservation of a slice of curated history will of course affect everyone, regardless of whether they understand it or not. Hence the importance of schooling children in museums. They will very likely find it boring and tedious in the moment, but it will contribute to a fundament that exists beyond the merely intellectual and which reaches resolutely into their adult selves. There are many things one could write about the creative and philosophical work of Ernst Jünger, but one of the key concepts from a philosophical point of view is his definition of the anarch, as someone who exists on the outside while still on the inside. More specifically, the position of quiet resistance to stupidity, totalitarianism, oppression, general negativity, etc. Taking a cue from the thoughts of Max Stirner, this could be seen as a survival mechanism, and increasingly so in dire times such as war and state-based oppression. Jünger contrasts this to the position of the anarchist, who is someone always attached to the authority, albeit in opposition. The anarchist will always be a prisoner of his own position, and will be terminated either by the force of the enemy or by his own design. The anarch, on the other hand, can exist under the most horrible circumstances because he experiences freedom on the inside, a freedom that no one can see, hear or touch, and hence can never take away. A metaphor that Jünger often used, both in literature and in his philosophical writings, is der Waldgang, the walking in the forest. Of course, this could be a literal activity too, to be immersed in nature and solitary speculation. But the isolation, if even for a minute or less, of the mind or soul from the overwhelming saturation of stupidity and primitive cruelty of la comédie humaine can rejuvenate and inspire to manage and survive. The Waldgang is a strengthening meditation in exterior or interior praxis that can literally become a lifesaver. Jünger's home is very much an externalization of his inner spheres and attitudes, of his own walking in the forest. The house is filled with his history, material objects in resonance and conversation with each other. The many books that he read tell an inspiring story, not necessarily of their writing, but rather of his reading the accumulation of spirits from near and far in time and space. The insects ditto. They existed on their own, 
but he collected them very literally and restructured them not only to create a Linnaean order for its own sake, but to display them, if to no one else than at least to himself in his religious admiration of the natural universe. The space as well as time is imbued with a talismanic sense of awe, in which even the smallest part you can have access to in your proximity tells the whole story. An appreciation of the smallest common denominators, whether they be genomes, bugs or the letters of an alphabet, because of their inherent power to create entirely new scenes and scenarios, given the chance through an intelligent authorship. The Jünger House garden was still kept up beautifully, 11 years after his demise. And in the garden, as this was a summer trip, we could find Jünger's pet turtle still slowly moving around, checking the lay of the land quite literally and occasionally being lifted to higher ground when some curious human being lifted it to inspect and express admiration that it was still alive. This made me think very much uh, of a similar scenario in which Jünger himself was the actual turtle. Eagerly and actively inspecting nature close up, busying himself with joining the dots of soil and roots and fellow animals, but occasionally being lifted to the realms of the gods, not only so that they themselves could inspect this remarkable animal, so diligently and eloquently admiring life itself, but also so that they could allow him a bird's eye perspective of the garden in question. This would allow for a more substantial joining of the dots through deep associations and references that simply don't exist on the ground level. Jünger's experiences in both world wars, in which he was a keenly observing protagonist and a decorated soldier wallowing through mechanical death and a great number of life-threatening situations, all provoking bravery and immediate transcendence in order to not succumb to despair and demise, brought insights that he used in his literary and philosophical work, as did his experimentations with psychedelic drugs all through his life, including tripping on LSD with a Swiss chemist and Jünger admiring friend who developed this magic potion, Albert Hoffmann. The temporary glances given at what Jünger described as tall booths allowed for him to enrich his thinking and descriptive powers, to concoct something truly unique in form and content based on transcendental moments. To further displace expectations and indulge in the timeless, Jünger used classic metaphors and gods stemming from antiquity rather than the flat commercialized surfaces of the contemporary. Plus, the natural agents of flora, fauna and geological forces that also defy time and space by their mere existence through their submission to the totality. Where Jünger was definitely a Nietzschean in outlook, or perhaps more of a Schopenhauerian, advocating free will for those that are capable, 
There was in him an almost religious humility in the relationship between human affairs and greater historical movements. Looking at this, as well as at nature, Jünger claimed one needed a stereoscopic vision in order to fully grasp any context or bigger picture. We see what we see or perceive with our senses, but there's also the aspect of meaning based on inherent capacity. This has to be taken into account as much as what we causally perceive, and preferably at the same time. Which is why history can be shifted by very small cogs in the machinery, given the right opportunity or insight. Although we are taught that history is written and edited by the winning side, it may not always be that simple. There is undoubtedly a causal and material movement that pushes humanity and culture forward, but to the individual this doesn't essentially carry greater value than one's own perceptions. And this is why humans can survive under horrible circumstances such as war and totalitarianism. They have their own inner vision and process, something that can only be threatened if it's voiced or expressed unwisely. The stereoscopic regard is one of insight and honesty, one which brings epiphanic potential and poetic rather than logical deductions. It is of great use to authors like Jünger, of course, but equally to any thinking human who has the audacity to look beyond the given parameters. In each offering of uh, solace and comfort, whether it be religious, political or any other system of faith, there is always a seduction to accept one's place in a given power dynamic. Usually, this is not a seduction or outcome conducive to a full blooming of the individual soul and its potential. Where most people do seem to find comfort in the safety of numbers and collective rigidity, there are always individuals who simply cannot accept it for themselves. In publicly expressed opposition, these become the anarchists. In silence, the anarchs. For Jünger, the choice was already presented early on. Although a prolific writer and celebrated thinker, his stance, almost paradoxically, as a visible and audible anarch, helped push an attitude of resolute inner strength and radiating spirituality that could definitely be seen as religious but never sectaristic in much the same way as other thinkers and authors from the German-speaking sphere at the time, such as Hermann Hesse, Rudolf Steiner, Ludwig Klages and Carl Jung. Of course, one can always delve back in time even further if one wants to understand Jünger. To Goethe, of course, but also to Alexander von Humboldt, whose scientific expeditions in the outer brought much poetic fodder for his inner work. In many cases, von Humboldt's characterizations and statements sound like pure programming or establishment of the man who was to become Ernst Jünger. Quote, he who seeks spiritual peace amidst the unresolved strife between peoples, therefore gladly lowers his gaze to the quiet life of plants and into the inner workings of the sacred force of nature, 
or surrendering to the instinctive drive that has glowed for millennia in the breast of humanity, he looks upward with awe to the high celestial bodies, which, in undisturbed harmony, complete their ancient eternal course. End quote. End quote. But nature is the domain of liberty, and to give a lively picture of those ideas and those delights which a true and profound feeling in her contemplations inspires, it is needful that thought should clothe itself freely and without constraint in such forms and with such elevation of language as may be least unworthy of the grandeur and majesty of creation. End quote. Before leaving Wilflingen, we also visited Junior's grave and had lunch at the restaurant Fier Löwe. I munched away at my schnitzel with fried potatoes, sipping some beer, talking to my friends. Looking at my friend across the table and then upwards, I noticed a photo of Junger right above him. Junger must have eaten there many times during almost 50 years of residence down the street. And although there was certainly no milking of any touristic Jünger aspects, you could certainly feel the pride among the remaining villagers and guests. In the end, it's not really the fame that matters locally, but rather the real living memories of those who actually met him, and then the stories that will remain after those people are gone. Stories are always retold in slightly different ways, but in Wilflingen one can at least always go straight to the horse's mouth, or at least the horse's stable, and feel what Jünger was really about. To have a beautiful and inspiring home is one thing. To have it continue inspiring future generations requires tender, loving care more than anything else. As we left the little village, we were amazed at the power of not only a unique author's mind, but also of his particular intersection in time and space that we had just been graced by. As we drove on towards Switzerland, we stopped over at the flower island of Mainau in Lake Constance. Developed by Prince Lennart of the Swedish royal family, the Bernadotte, the castle as well as island is a huge celebration of nature in general and of flowers in particular. Although this was a pretty grey day, the radiance and colours overwhelmed us as we strolled the paths and gardens. Jünger must surely have visited Mainau many times. He seemed to have appreciated the order of gardens, and perhaps especially when they are as well ordered as Mainau. However, and this is the real philosophical insight of any gardener or naturalist, as humans we can only very temporarily take care of the land and make of it what we desire. Although much beauty can be made in harmony with the inherent potential of plants and produce, it is very much an ambitious vanity project. The beauty we partake of and the vegetables and fruits we ingest definitely keep us alive. But if the upkeep and illusory sense of order is removed, then other interests immediately take over and the harnessing stemming from raw force rules supreme again. Although we can accept a temporary stewardship, we should be aware of our insignificance in the big picture. 
depending on which cultural position you have adopted, it could be either nature is Satan's church, as in Lars von Trier, or the Lord works in mysterious ways. If we don't tend to our allotment, it will be quickly overgrown. Voltaire perhaps, perhaps expressed it best of all with his Il faut cultiver son jardin. You have to take care of your garden. Jünger's garden of books, ideas and attitudes will hopefully last a long time. But, interestingly, he himself believed that his longevity would more have to do with the fact that he has a few insects named after him, provided the Linnaean system lives on. Although most often casual and detached on the surface, it seems that Jünger had given this dilemma a great deal of thought. As we finally drove into Zürich in the evening, we were genuinely exhausted after a week-long journey that had taken us through so many inspiring experiences. When a pilgrimage is over, it is always with a sense of sadness one evaluates even the beautiful things one has experienced. Memories need to be planted in one's own system so that everything can grow and bloom in new ways. An inspiration is literally a breathing in that will vitalize one's system with existential oxygen. On the most ephemeral levels, it could be diary entries or photographs that remind us of what actually happened. But on a deeper level, it's always the emotions and memories themselves that must be allowed their own life and growth within us. With great tending, new flowers will grow. I am certain Ernst Jünger would agree. Thank you for listening to We Are On The Road To Somewhere by me, Carl Abrahamson. If you want to find out more about my books and projects, please visit www.carlabrahamson.com. To support lectures like this and other projects, please visit www.patreon.com slash Vanessa23Carl. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a talk by Carl Abrahamson. Join us this Sunday, December 19th, when Carl presents Secrecy Exposed on the Necessity of Psychic Stigma and Dynamic Darkness in Occultism, live via Zoom at Morbid Anatomy Museum online. He'll be presenting with Mitch Horowitz, who's presenting Up, Up, O Ye Gods, Hermeticism as a Path for Modern Seekers. Visit our website, psychartcult.org and Morbid Anatomy site, morbidanatomy.org slash events to register. On the Psych Art Cult website, you can also find links to previous psychoanalysis art in the occult events on this podcast, as well as videos on YouTube. We also have a book, of collected papers from our first Psychoanalysis Art in the Occult Conference held in London 2016. It's The Fenris Wolf, Volume 9.
You can also check out more from Carl at his website, carlabrahamson.com. That's C-A-R-L-A-B-R-A-H-A-M-S-S-O-N.com. And listen to other previous episodes of Rendering Unconscious Podcasts with Carl. Carl and I did a talk together about Rendering Unconscious, the book. That's Rendering Unconscious, episode 28. You can hear his lecture presented at our second Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult Conference, Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis, held in Murano, Italy, at Brunenberg Castle. That's episode 82. He's presenting alongside Ethan Clark on Myth and Media. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. And now the song, Mad Love. From our first album, Cut to Fit the Mouth. Available digitally on Bandcamp and streaming on Spotify and iTunes as well as a limited CD box set complete with original artwork by me. Atrapart Editions, www.trapart.net. Just look for the tab Highbrow Low Life to find all of our limited edition CDs and visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. bird peck at a flower. This is mad love. For procreation, and then was considered to be these prime agents of the X. In processing scientific, made by accident, which it distributed we, memory. the expanse of night, and some in both, from their visceral dance, mortal creating, as in my occult, and the even dog, in book form, thankful, creating music in, Mode of creating dream work from their visceral creativity is seen in her pain, changes, member, the body, anthology, wallow in the mire, and some in both to in, share, no hotel, which it distributed, finally come, memory, can only lose, symbols. The Institute, Tilted Machine, Creativity is seen in her, Every Mad Love, Member, Prime Agents, Anthology, In Front of You, A Simulacrum, On the Complex Relationship, As a Conservator, Pain, Changes, Environment, Hearing Stories, The Body With, She is Current, Communicated Isn't, Finally Come, Dance, Revenge, Wallow in the Mire, Freeze, can only lose. He has done. Finally come. Analysis. To share. No. Hotel. Four decades. And revenge. Revenge. 
She is currently hearing stories for procreation, a simulacrum of what is considered to be as a conservator in processing scientific analysis and made by accident for procreation and creativity is seen in her. Made by accident, we and some the expanse of night, memory, thankful, symbols, dream work, machine. Mode of creating, tilted, which it distributed, every symbols, creating music in, in book form. This is mad love, dream work. <laughs>